Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mindshifters Radio, and today is Monday, May the 22nd, 2023, and Dr. Tim is off until next Tuesday, so he's given me a list of shows to play in his absence. So the one today is an interview he did in April with Laura McCowan. Enjoy, and we'll be back for the second hour. Laura McGowan had a long and successful career in public relations and the madman-esque drinking culture of advertising. After getting sober, she quickly became recognized as a fresh voice in recovery, beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing online and in print. She now leads sold-out retreats and courses, teaching people how to say yes to a bigger life. She lives outside Boston, Massachusetts with her daughter. Laura writes an award-winning blog and hosted the iTunes Top 100 Home podcast. She has been featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, WebMD, Psychology Today, The Today Show, The Doctors, and more. Laura has an MBA from Babson College and spent 15 years in advertising, managing million-dollar accounts for Fortune 100 companies before transitioning to writing and teaching. She's the founder of several online programs for sobriety and personal development, The Luckiest Club, a sobriety support community, and she teaches workshops and retreats all over the U.S. Her first book, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic of a Sober Life, released January of 2020 and was an instant bestseller. Her most recent book is titled Push Off From Here. Nine Essential Truths to Get You Through Sobriety and Everything Else. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. It's great to see you, Laura. Thanks for joining me again. I'm thrilled with um, having been through both reading and listening to your your new book, um, Push Off From Here. And I'm thrilled to have a discussion with you about the two books and uh, what brought you into them and where where they've launched you. Sure. So the first, my first book, We Are the Luckiest, uh, is really focused on my story. It's a memoir of my journey through alcohol addiction and sobriety. And I 
the, so if I, that published in 2020, but if I go back a bit, <clears throat> I started writing about this topic as I was getting sober and in my first years of sobriety. And one of the things that I did uh, was I would often answer letters from people uh, who wrote to me about various things around their sobriety or addiction. And I got this letter from a woman whose sister was struggling with alcohol and she was going through all the things that people go through uh, when someone you love is struggling with addiction. She was angry and happy, you know, mad and frustrated, but also loves her sister and, you know, kind of walking on eggshells, didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. And she asked me, what would you have wanted to hear? And so I wrote her this letter in response and said all these all this stuff, but then at the end I said, if you, um, you know, if this is too much, just give her this list. And I made a list of the things that I most needed to hear in that time when I was trying to get sober and kind of still needed to hear. I was a couple of years sober when I wrote this. And there are these nine points, um, and I'll say what they are in a minute, but that letter was written in 2016. I published it on my blog, um, and I, when I went to write We Are the Luckiest in 2020 or published in 2020, I knew that I wanted those nine things to be the epigraph to the book, so the little part in the beginning of the book before anything starts. And what was funny was people really gravitated to those nine things. Like there's this whole book, you know, that right. follows, but people really love, love those nine things. And what they are – is one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. So that book goes out. Like I said, it's a story. It's my story. It's really about my experience. And it was published in January of 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic hit a couple of months later. And I was in the middle of book tour and um, everything got canceled. And I'm sitting there at home one day and I see that my local AA chapter is, has shut down and they're not going to be having meetings. And I'd never seen that happen before, you know, ever not for any storm or holiday or like it just it was it was a moment where I thought oh my god you know what are what's going to happen to all these people that need support and I felt pretty solid in my sobriety at that point and I had built enough of a community and a following online and everything that I just thought okay I'll host some free meetings not AA meetings just I'll create a structure of my own and host some free meetings for this week, <laughs> thinking that that would, you know, the, the pandemic was going to be very short-lived. Um, and so I started hosting these meetings, and 200, 300, 400 people started to show up. And I, I had them that one week, and then I was like, all right, we'll just keep going because I'm around. <laughs> I don't have anything to do. Right. And I mean, I had a lot to do, I was, you know, but I didn't have anything to do. We're all homebound. And so... Uh, I, I hosted those meetings for six weeks, and it felt like in that time there was just something really magical happening in those spaces. 
um, a lot of let the me, people. Let me, let, me, let me just interrupt you and say there's a real gift in you to be able to recognize that magic happening. Mm. And and don't lose that. Watch for that. These are rare. You know, in my experience, it's rare to have that kind of chemistry come together in a group. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, you know, not that it should be the, the be-all and end-all, but it is a wonderful thing when people recognize it and begin to nurture it. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think that's true. I can look back now and see that this that was like this very unique, specific alchemy happening right. at that time. And I'm glad I said yes to it. You know, I'm glad I, I jumped on it. So I was going to stop doing the meetings, though, because I had – things to do and my daughter was home and and I had you know other work I mean I like I had other things to do so I and it was a lot I was hosting two meetings a day one in the morning and one at night and but I got a lot of people saying please just keep these going this is the first community I've ever had this is the first time I've ever experienced a meeting I'm really relying on these I'm loving them and and so within about I made a, a quick decision talked to like a couple people, my brother, and uh, just sort of sat with it. And I thought, you know what, I'll just, I- I'm going to give it a shot. I hired some people to lead meetings. Not So it wasn't just me. I set up, I created a, a name for this community called the Luckiest Club based on my book and just <clears throat> ran with it, really set it up in about, um, you know, about a week and, uh, started a company or started a community rather and it's now still existing and thriving and we have over 40 meetings a week in this you know, amazing community and app and all these other offerings so but what happened in there so when I decided to create the luckiest club I was like okay these nine things are going to be like our backbone this right. is what we're going to say at the end of every meeting and they're just they're they're kind of our mission in a way. Um, I tweaked the last two points. So number eight was I love you, and I made it say we love you, or no, you are loved, sorry. You are loved. And then number nine was I will never stop reminding you of these things, and I made it we. So it's now this collective statement. And people just, you know, they 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 stuck, and people really um, – it resonated with them. It resonated with them, yeah. And they're so simple. Um, but people started to, you know, they just they just clicked. And over time, in, in running the Luckiest Club and, and in the community, it became very clear that while they understood these nine things, they're pretty straightforward and intuitive, it was also like, okay, but what does it really mean? Like, tell me more. How do you take responsibility why is it helpful to hear that it's unfair that this is my thing? Like, what's beyond that? Yeah, how do you do uh, responsibility without blame and guilt, et cetera? Exactly. So um, it wasn't good. I wasn't going to write this next book. That wasn't going to be what I wrote. But um, it became clear that that was something that was, that needed to be written. And so the, that's what Push Off From Here is. That's the, the book that just came out is uh, an exploration of those nine points and a sort of prescriptive, practical guide to how you might apply them. 
to your life. And that's how it came to be. So it's this interesting thread that started in 2016 and just, you know, I kind of followed the breadcrumbs and um, ended up with now these, these two books out in the world. And so my mind goes to, can you tell us how you define your thing? Because I have this thing in my head. I don't want to say it until after you've talked. But what what do you mean by this is your thing? Right. So things are what I think of it as anything that pushes you up against the edge of yourself and what you know and how you've coped in the past and, and really just pushes you outside of what you're capable of coping with based on, on your sort of present skill set, I guess. It's pain. Things are things that cause you pain and, and, and str- suffering and struggle that you have to change. You have to go through some kind of transformation or change in order to get through them. Um, another more simple way of putting it is your things are things that kind of own you. They take away your freedom um, and your attention in a way that is destructive to you. Yeah, and oh. as as I come away from it after reading your two books a couple times, I I think of my thing as anything that blocks me from living fully in the moment, joyfully and creatively. Right? If it's well, that's it's, a much more eloquent <laughs> description of things than I than I did. I should have a better. I've been writing about it for so long, but yes, you're right. That's that's a great because way to put it. That's, that's one of the things that I get from your two books is that it, it, while your struggle with an addictive process is you know part of, of, of both books and a big part of your life, it's not your whole life, and it's not mm-hmm. where you're focusing your energy to be able to have healthy, vibrant life and relationships and have joy in your life and the way I come to think about my thing is anything that is like a roadblock to me being there present in the moment being able to work through what's difficult and still embrace gratitude for life itself and having joy in my life yeah I think that's very well said when you were talking I thought of this line that I heard in yoga teacher training long time ago that was the blocks are the path and I would say that that things are the blocks. They're not a problem. They're actually just part of life, right? But we do, they, they are, the blocks are the path. They're not, um, they're there to help us grow and figure out who we are and create ultimately more joy and meaning in our lives. But man, they suck. You know, no, they're, they're, uh, addiction is one thing, but can be death, illness, divorce, eating disorders, anything that, you know, that, like you said, robs us of our presence. And or has me running away from it rather than mm-hmm. realizing that it's not possible for something to actually be bigger than me and be there with it until my strength builds to the point where I can move through it with ease and grace. 
Right. If I run from it, I don't build that strength. I don't have the experience of being bigger than whatever is in front of me. And and that's one of the things that I have taken so beautifully, I think, that you write about in these books, is that the point is to build a joyful, creative, expansive life. Yeah. And anything that wants to get in the way of me doing that is one of my things. Yes. And that, you know, I think one of the the reason I called it a thing, like, to me, when I went to get sober, it felt like addiction was this very singular <clears throat> sort of special thing that people go through. And that if you that it, it would that be something that you just had to live with forever and kind of like center your life around right. and think about it all the time and worry about it all the time and have it sort of define your identity. And the reason I, I called it a thing is because there's it's just this benign sort of term. Like there's so many different things that people face. Addiction is not that unique. It's not unique at all. It's not special. It's not even, I don't think it's that interesting. It just so happened to be this one of the things that I faced. And the idea is that I think that's important to say because we definitely other people who go through addiction. Right. And, and that's why, one of the things I love about well, the way you write about this and you've worked through it, thought about it, struggled with it, is that in a culture where the alcohol is basically the only drug you have to explain why you're not using it, right? The only other, mm -hmm. it's the only destructive, addictive substance you have to explain why you're not going to use it. Mm -hmm. it's a, that's a pretty sick culture. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a pretty distorted mindset. Mm -hmm. And to build a life in a culture that I, I, I love this line from Tuesdays with Maury where um, Mitch Album, who wrote the book, was talking to Maury, who was dying of ALS, and he said, Maury, I don't get it. You can't carry a tune to save your life. And when you get on the dance floor, it looks like somebody's constantly jabbing you with a cattle prod. And yet you sing at the top of your lungs and you dance like nobody's watching. How do you do it? And Maury said, well, Mitch, if you live in a culture that doesn't help you feel good about yourself, you need to create your own culture. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's what I get from reading your books about, listen, if I want to go into a place where everybody's drinking and everybody's status is how much they can drink and how many shots they can do and still function. And if I want to go into that culture and I have a problem with, you know, the way my body responds to alcohol where my judgment derails me and I, and I drink to the point where I'm going to kill myself, I need to create a culture or a place I can go and people I can surround myself with who aren't doing that as their primary entertainment or their primary right. distraction from life. Right. And the thing about your books is to say, this can happen. Totally. This is a very real possibility. There are all kinds of intelligent, creative, loving, productive people who don't drink. They either yeah. don't drink all the time or they don't drink at all. Yeah. And you can and build absolutely. a life for yourself in those environments and within those communities. And if they aren't right there in your face, 
take, you know, Maury's advice, create your own community, which is what you've done with TLC. Yeah. Yeah, and even a step further than that, too, is, like, I can exist in in the other spaces, too, where people are prizing this this thing, uh, alcohol, and where it's they're obsessed about it, and, and you know, it, and it's very normalized, and not feel other. Like, I don't care anymore. Right, but you do that after you've created the yes. strength in your core yes. about your value as a person. And, and the only way you do that is you define for yourself your value that's other than what the, the culture or the conditioning that you've been brought up in would define you as deficient if you can't drink with your buddies, et cetera. Yes, which I feel like that extra step, that second part is where a lot of recovery stops short it's like you're you're focused on the no instead of the yes and so much about as you just said that you're other yeah you're not just another noodle in the soup there's something really weird about you right you're damaged and broken so you better find other damaged and broken people hang out with and stay away from those other healthy people or those other stronger people Right, those normal people. Right, that's just not the way it works. No, I never bought that. I don't know why. I just, I thought that, I never bought that. It's just weird to me. But but I I get why people do, you know, it's everywhere. Well, and if it's, and if if that's the core value or belief system or mode of operating from the community that you find to help you pull back from the edge so you're not going to kill yourself with your addiction, that's a part of the community. Then in order to belong there, you buy into that. Yeah. That we are other and that we are weaker. And that, and right. I get it. And it, it, it's, as you might have said a couple of times, it's a useful first step or two, but it's not our goal. Our goal is not to define ourselves as so damaged and broken. Our goal is to shore up those weak spots and build on our strengths and recognize our value yeah and and you know it's so funny because i still still see it like i saw this interview with melanie lansky is an an amazing actress and her husband they were on the drew barrymore show this was like really recently like two weeks ago and he was talking about how his a little bit about his path and he um you could see in his body language, like he's he is someone who struggled with alcohol and got sober, but you could see in his body language that he there was still so much shame there. And he was very apologetic and very, you know, I don't like there's a difference between humility and like apologizing for yourself. And I, I identified that in the interview as like, God, you don't have to carry it around like that anymore, man. You know, so. Well, and that thing about humility is the way I grew up and the way it was introduced to me that being humble is putting yourself below other people. Mm-hmm. But what I understand from the ancient uh, origins of the word from the ancient Aramaic, et cetera, is that it's more about being able to see that we're all the same and to look for and be able to identify the highest and best in another person. And then despite what's coming out of them toward you, cooperate only with their highest and best. 
Mm. Engage them as though they are the same level of value. They are another person of a being of brilliance and light. And, yeah, they might have temporarily forgotten or yet to discover their brilliance, but I can still relate to them as who they really are. Yeah, I love that. That's great. It just puts us all – so this thing about humility is to recognize that the only significant difference between any of us at any time is the degree to which we live from the realization that we're all the same. What? He said the only difference is that we're all the same. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only difference. Some of us think we flip-flop between thinking we're better and worse than others, and some of us are able to recognize we're just another noodle in the soup. Yep, that's right. That's right. And and that you, there's so much power in that, you know. It's very enticing to want to think that you're one up, but or one down because it takes or one down, off, right? Yes. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm yeah, I'm so unworthy. Uh, Who am I to do this? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, there's a there's a trap that is really really enticing, but it's lovely to get out of it. So lovely, yeah. Everything's possible there when you don't have to take yourself so seriously and and so personally. That's I think the real freedom is I found being caught in an addiction or anything that I guess causes you a lot of shame is that you're constantly thinking about yourself not in a not in a good way but it's like everything uh, I talk about this and push off from here I got it from you actually like this how useless blame is and this idea that you know, I am to blame for everything in all cases and that, you know, anything bad that happens is my fault. Um, is such a, it's such a strange, strangely egotistical way of viewing the world. Um, and even though we're doing it to sort of punish ourselves or like keep ourselves one down, it's so the, the, the um, paradox is that it's this grandiose idea, you know? Right. It, it, you have to have a kind of a split inside yourself to be able to say that there's a part of me that knows what a schmuck I am, <laughs> part of me that knows better than the part of me that keeps acting in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm both, you know, the, the villain and the hero. It's, it's, there's a craziness in the way our thought patterns work or that we're conditioned into that, you know, David Bohm has called sustained incoherence. Mm. And, and you know, Krishnamurti would talk of as just the absolute trap of thought. Yeah. Right? So um, I think my way into a problem, and then I think I better think a way out of it. And it's mm-hmm. not going to happen because the actual process of thought is flawed. Here, I'm going to judge myself as bad and wrong. Well, who's judging who? How can I be, you know, these two separate people? One of them knows so much better than the other, and I beat myself up mercilessly for every misstep or faux pas or whatever, and it's just a trap. It's me just spinning my wheels. I'm not going anywhere. Nope. Nope. Yeah, that is the trap. That's one of the things I think that has been the gift of being in recovery is that I just, I think of, of, of myself a lot less. 
not that it, in the sense of like just the t- the amount of time and energy I spend thinking about obsessing about what I've done wrong and myself and, and, oh, they must be mad at me and this is about me and, and like that exhausting, you know, thought process. Many of us live in those, what in the psychological realm is actually an actual, you know, pathological thing at an extreme and it's called ideas of reference. I think everything's about me. I walk into a room and I think that the conversation went into a lull and then I think, oh, it's because I walked in. It's if when I make it too much about me, I'm losing the perspective that everybody I meet started out as a sperm and an egg and had their own life challenges and is going to end up in dust, et cetera, that we're all the same. Yeah, and they're, everyone's living in their own, you know, the amount – it was such a relief to, like, learn that people were not thinking about me. Like, they, they, are, thinking, they are doing the same thing I am, which is worrying about themselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Guy, Guy Finley has a, a thing where he says the the vast majority of your mental and emotional pain, psychological pain, is the bitter fruit of a comparative life. Mm. Wow. Right, and that's that that ties into this thing about it. Every time you compare yourself to somebody else and you come out on the bottom, what you're doing is comparing their highlight reel to your outtakes. Yep. And vice versa. When you come out on top. You're just selectively picking the best bits of you and looking at somebody else and their outtakes. And and again, the, the question that we try to help people ask is, what good does that do you? How does that move you forward in your life, in growth, in productivity, in joy? How does that do that? No, it doesn't. I think it's so so often it's just unconscious, it's subconscious. You're just that's where you're living. Well, it's what we've been. Con- con- trained in to do, conditioned to to do, because, you know, we were born into this realm. It's like um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I saw him say something like, you know, we say we try to make sense of things and that we put a high value on making sense of things. But pay attention to how limiting that is. That means I'm going to make everything fit into what I can sense with my five senses, Mm-hmm. And he says, the universe is out here trying to talk to us beyond our five senses. What does he mean by that? X-rays, infrared, ultraviolet, all these things are there, We, but we can't register them with our senses. Well, there's a lot more going on here yeah. than just the physical. Yeah. And so if all we're doing is measuring any person by what their physical output is, we're in a trap. We're in yeah. this very, very narrow, myopic view of life. Yeah, we're missing 95% of it. <laughs> and, for instance, you would never have noticed the magic going on with the Luckiest Club mm-hmm. if all you looked at was stats. Right, right. Oh, there's only 100 people here. And there, exactly. Out. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Um, I've had a few of those mo- moment, many actually many in sobriety. That was that has been one of the absolute gifts is just being present to what was already are, always happening around me. I was just too, you know, mired in my addiction to to be able to see it. Right, and w- another way to talk about it is that almost all of us, at least in the Western culture, 
have an addiction, a couple of addictions we're not even aware of. One of them oh, is yeah. the addiction to the familiar. Mm. Another one is the addiction to judge. Yes. And whenever I'm judging, I'm not going to see as many of these, like you called it an alchemy, right? This this wonderful chemistry in this group of people. If I'm judging, it's good, it's bad, it's right, it's wrong. Whenever life unfolds in a way that I don't want it to and I start to judge, that's bad. I'm crimping my view down to this very narrow view. I'm getting tight and tense as though I might need to protect myself from something. And my field of vision is so narrow, I miss Mm -hmm. all of the ways that there might be a little miracle happening here, a wonderful synchronicity happening there, a wonderful opportunity expanding right here. So along with your sobriety, as you, let's say, we uh, we decide to um, get sober from judging, mm-hmm. we will also expand our ability to see these alchemies and miracles yeah. exponentially. Yeah, that's... That's exactly it. I mean, I, I think, you know, just the alcohol example, I remember so so many days I just had to focus on, like, how sick I felt and just to try to get to the other side of that. You know, I can't even imagine what I missed on those days. Cause, but, but we're all, like, if you look at it as judging, you know, judging is like a trance you get into. Like, it's this very seductive trance. And if all you can think about is, how resentful you are about this thing that happened or what, you know, whatever the judgments are never ending. It's like, you're literally at your eyes are closed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we come by it naturally. We've developed into it over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of generations, basically focused on the physical above all else. And not every culture did that. Yeah. Right. There were other cultures that had more focus on other energies and intuition and prayer and meditation and being in alignment with nature and so but our Western culture has basically have developed to be focusing just on the physical and we've been conditioned from the language we learn all the way through all of our schooling to be in judgment. So if you want to take your health and your well-being and the joy in your life to the next level, try to go, try to abstain from judgment. Yeah. And get sober from judgment. It's hard, man. It's That's a trick what... because it's been so thoroughly conditioned and so much of our mind that, that helps us, our brain that helps us is autopilot. Yeah. It's a really mm-hmm. useful thing, right? I wouldn't want to have to learn how to drive a car every time I get in one. <laughs> right. So there's a part of the mind where it's useful, but another area of my life where that judgment and that autopilot and what Guy Finley would call the mechanical level of mind is counterproductive Yep. at best. At best. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah. So then a lot of times people ask, well, so if I'm not judging, what am I supposed to do? Just accept everything and just be a doormat and... No, the the option that some people like Rilke, uh, Rainier Marie Rilke will will say is we we need to learn to live in the question without demanding an answer because in the moment a mind can ask a really loving, powerful question, 
that mind isn't even capable of comprehending the answer. That mind has to grow and expand. And in Rilke's words, perhaps if we stay in that questioning state, learning to live there, we might grow along someday into an answer. Yes. Yeah. So instead the... of judging, this is bad, this shouldn't happen, as if I start saying, oh, well, this has happened, I wonder how this is going to work out. I leave yeah. myself in an open space rather than, damn it, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah, that's a huge thing I talk about and push off from here was just, is this that um, how self-denigration is just like our default in Western culture and shame. We just we just beat the crap out of ourselves and how we think that's actually what's going to make us change, you know, more pressure, more discipline, more self-beating. And that sobriety was actually the first time that I realized, like, that isn't going to work. That That's not working here. I can't punish, I can't hate myself into getting sober. I tried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and lots of know. people will help you try that. <laughs> they will. Yeah, oh, cause yeah. Because they're, they're doing it to themselves. And, and well, that's and what they're doing it taught. to you, too, right? Yes. Especially, that's the, that's the sort of where addiction is unique, because... There are many people who t- will tell you what a piece of crap you are, you know, right. being. And what we know about how these human mind, body, energy systems work is anybody who tells you you're a piece of crap doesn't feel good about themselves. Yeah. Whatever comes out of that person's mouth is always going to tell you more about what's going on inside that person than it's ever going to tell you about you or anything around them. Yeah, that's so. it's so hard to take that in, though. Like, that's a... That's like a PhD level lesson, I think, for for a lot of people, including myself, you know, because we... Well, listen, um, being able to live there all day, every day would be PhD level. That's like, but please don't cheat yourself out of the ability to play with it and grow in your ability to do it moment to moment from situation to situation. Right. Because it's as easy as recognizing that's an option and then opening up to, well, what if? Right. What if what, if what that's this person true, is that... saying is not about me? Right. What if when I when I attack somebody in anger or an insult, it means there's a pain or fear or sadness in me? And what if I take a breath and turn in here and look at that? Mm-hmm. And it's this process of growing into recognizing it, if it happens to be true for you. But the only way you can do that is if you move yourself more and more into observation in the moment and away from belief and judgment. Yeah, I did this really, like, one of the big turning points I had when I was getting sober was I, I, you know, had a night, a morning where I woke up after drinking again, not wanting to again, and doing it again, and, you know, I woke up with those same self-beating thoughts running through my head, like, I can't, you know, I can't believe you're in this spot again, you're, this, you suck, this, you know, what is it going to take, you piece of crap, and thinking, um, I remembered this was actually from Eat, Pray, Love. It's like it just came to me. Liz Gilbert sitting in an ashram in India, uh, going through an episode of like extreme depression and anxiety, and writing to herself in the voice of what she understood as God, and just saying like, "Look, I'm here. I." 
I'm stronger than this depression and I am not going anywhere. And like, what do you need? I'm not going to leave you. And I remembered that in that moment and I wrote that down to myself. Like, okay, I'm not leaving. Like you're, I'm here. So you drink again. So what, what happened? What was that about? And it was such a totally, I, I remember looking down at my feet. It was summertime and like my feet were tan and I had blue nail polish on and I thought, and thinking like, your feet are really pretty. <laughs> and thinking like, you're, you're beautiful. It's okay. And so in that moment, it was this like loving curiosity. Like instead of going, I can't believe that happened again and you did that again. Like just going, so what happened? Right. It made, Excellent. you know, it made all the difference. Yeah. Childlike curiosity, as you say, loving curiosity. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I realize we're we're pushing up against one of my hard time limits, so I want to come back to you and ask you if you just take a breath and center. Um, what's a, a an area that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you want to talk about, or um, something that we've already discussed that you want to go back and highlight? I think that. The thing that I would love to, to just touch on is there's a part, there's chapter three in the book is about, uh, in push off from here is, is it's unfair that this is your thing. And writing this chapter was such a journey for me because I didn't really know what else to say about that. Like I knew that it was something that I needed to hear and that is very helpful for other people to hear, but I, didn't know exactly why and like what is underneath that. And what I realized in writing it and sort of digging is we don't actually expect things to be fair. Like we don't really think that life is fair. Um, So it wasn't about that. It was about having someone witness and acknowledge and validate your sorrow. And that's what it was about. We we need I think it, I read Tara Brock when I was writing this, I read Tara Brock's Radical Acceptance. And she writes about the the need for someone to witness our sorrow and acknowledge that it's real and when it came to addiction and there's other areas where this applies but I realized we have all of these sort of unstated rules about grief in our culture about who's allowed to feel it and at what level and for how long and when it comes to addiction we do not think that people who struggle with addiction deserve to feel grief about it. They've caused the harm. They've caused the pain. They need to atone. (laughs) They don't deserve grief. And so what happened when I allowed myself to hear, like, this is just unfair. This sucks. 
was just that acknowledgement that, yeah, you are going through something really painful and really hard. And I see you. And I care about your suffering. And you're still okay and you're still beautiful and I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And how I just, that was such a, like, exploration for me. Um, to, to see what that was really about. And, and that's because so many people, when you go through something difficult and, and specific, whether it's parenthood or a divorce or your mother dies or whatever it is, you have to find people who are going to understand why this hurts and in the specific way that it hurts. So this speaks to the community that of people you might find. When I tried to go to my immediate family or my, you know, ex-husband or my friends even about what I, I was experiencing when I was trying to get sober. It was so, I was so frustrated and disappointed because they could not acknowledge that. Right. But when I found people who could and who got it and who would say, yes, this does suck. And yes, I, I see your pain and it's real and uh, I care about it. That changed everything. Yeah, like a warm bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, like coming home. Yeah, we have such a fundamental need to be seen. Yeah, and most of us that have that so deeply didn't have it uh, in our families of origins, even if they were, you know, not real abusive families, but whatever, I, I interviewed a psychiatrist who's uh, self-reported on the autism spectrum, and she's brilliant. And she talks about it as uh, children are either a laptop or a rock. What does that mean? Well, she said a rock, you know, it still functions as a rock. If you bounce it off the wall, if you drop it in a lake, if you throw it in, in a snowbank, it still functions as a rock. It can be a projectile or a doorstop. Or, but a laptop, you bounce that off a wall or drop it in a lake or throw it in a snowbank, it doesn't function at all. Mm. And you don't have to be raised in a highly abusive environment to come out not getting what you feel you need. And if there's a mismatch between your personality and your style and your physical sensitivities and and what your parents and your friends are able to provide in terms of connection and validation and support, then you can grow up feeling really, really weak in your core, and then you really need that outside validation more. You really need that sense of being heard. Yeah. My hunch, though, is at this stage in your life with your development, you're sense of urgency to feel heard is nowhere near as strong as it was when you were getting sober. No, not at all. Because now you've internalized it. Now you've got that core strength in here. Yeah. And that does, you know, I I, I want one of the the reasons that I write these books and just like like to do the work I do is because that's available to everybody. You know, it's not always going to feel that way. I had such a I can see that's why I was writing so much and talking so much. I I could not just 
say enough about what what was happening with me at that you know for years and then and now I don't feel yes I don't feel such an urgent need to do that at all because it's more solid within you because you can mm-hmm. rest in it internally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah wonderful wonderful well thank you so much for being willing to join us again My and pleasure. um I uh, is it is it your intention to keep um the luckiest club functioning is it going to stay yeah. where it is grow is there those support yeah. groups are going to be out there for people yeah it's i've hired i don't run it anymore there's i have a ceo there's four full-time employees there's a bunch of amazing contractors who run meetings it's we're growing and thriving and um there's no intention to stop it and people can find out about that where at the luckiestclub.com and then your two books are still available they're available everywhere you could buy a book we are the luckiest and push off from here yeah well thank you so much it's delightful thank you for all the work you do and congratulations Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that was an awesome interview with Laura McCowan. And I have put in the notes for today her two, the title of her two books and then also um, the, theluckiestclub.com where you can go to get information about that. This one ended early and I'm not real sure how this is going to work. It shows that the recording is still going, so I hope everybody is still hearing it. And Michael's going to attempt to dial in. However, it keeps saying that there's not another session for 13 minutes, so we'll see how all that goes. Um, So we welcome you to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Monday, May the 22nd, 2023. And our calling number is 563-999-3581. And press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. And what we've been doing is starting the show out by reading um, a couple of paragraphs out of Michael Singer's book called The Untethered Soul. And so where we stopped off yesterday... Um, we'll pick up and it says, how would you feel if someone outside, so outside of you, really started talking to you the way your inner voice does? How would you relate to a person who opened their mouth to say everything your mental voice says? After a very short period of time, you would tell them to leave and never come back. But when your inner friend continuously speaks up and you don't ever tell it to leave, No matter how much trouble it causes, you listen. There's almost nothing that voice can say that you don't pay full attention to. It pulls you right out of whatever you're doing, no matter how enjoyable, and suddenly you're paying attention to whatever it has to say. Imagine that you're in a serious relationship and are about to get married. You're driving to the wedding and that voice says, maybe this is not the right person. I'm really getting nervous about this. What should I do? If someone outside of you said that, you'd ignore them, but you feel you owe the voice an answer. You have to convince your nervous mind that this is the right person or it won't let you walk down the aisle. 
that's how much you res- how much respect you have for this neurotic thing inside of you. You know that if you don't listen to it, it will bother you every day of your life. I told you not to get married. I said I wasn't sure. The bottom line is undeniable. If somehow that voice managed to manifest in a body outside of you and you had to take it with you everywhere you went, you wouldn't last a day. If somebody were to ask you what your new friend is like, you'd say, this is one seriously disturbed person. Just look up neurosis in the dictionary and you'll get the picture. That being the case, once you've spent a day with your friend, what is the probability you'd go to them for advice? After seeing how often this person changed their mind, how conflicted they were on so many subjects, and how emotionally overreactive they tended to be, would you ever ask them for relationship or financial advice? As amazing as it seems, you do just that every moment of your life. Having taken its rightful place back inside of you, it's still the same quote-unquote person who tells you what to do about every aspect of your life. Have you ever bothered to check its credentials? How many times has that voice been totally wrong? She doesn't care for you anymore. That's why she hasn't called. She's going to break up with you tonight. I can feel it coming. I just know it. You shouldn't even answer the phone if she calls. After 30 minutes of this, the phone rings, and it's your girlfriend. She's late because it's your one-year anniversary, and she's preparing for a surprise dinner. It was definitely a surprise to you, since you completely forgot the anniversary. She says she's on her way over to pick you up. Well, you're very excited, and your inner voice is chatting about how great she is. But haven't you forgotten something? Haven't you forgotten about the bad advice that the inner voice gave you that caused you to suffer for the last half hour? What if you had hired a relationship advisor who had given you that terrible advice? They had completely misread the entire situation. Had you listened to the advisor, you never would have picked up the phone. Wouldn't you fire them on the spot? How would you ever trust their advice again after seeing how wrong they were? Well, are you going to fire your inner roommate? After all, its advice and analysis of the situation were totally wrong. No, you never hold it responsible for the trouble that it causes. In fact, the next time it gives advice, you're all ears. Is that rational? How many times has that voice been wrong about what was going on or what will be going on? Maybe it's worth noticing whom you're going to for advice. And I'm just watching the time here because Michael can't get dialed in for nine more minutes. So (laughs) I hope that this is still recording this first hour. If it's not, I will go back and somehow at least get the interview with Laura McCowan uh, uploaded into the archives. So my apologies for the the glitch on this. So when you're sincerely tired, or when you sincerely tried these practices of self-observation and awareness, you'll see that you're in trouble. You'll realize you've only had one problem your entire life and you're looking at it. It's pretty much the cause of every problem you've ever had. Now the question becomes, how do you get rid of this inner troublemaker? The first thing you'll realize is that there's no hope of getting rid of it until you really want to. Until you've watched your roommate long enough to truly understand the predicament you're in. You really have no basis for practices that help you deal with the mind. 
Once you've made the decision to free yourself from the mental melodrama, you are ready for teachings and techniques. You will now have a real use for them. You will be relieved to know that you are not the first person to have this problem. There are those who have gone before you who found themselves in the same situation. Many of them looked for guidance from those who had mastered this field of knowledge. They were given teachings and techniques such as yoga, which were created to help in this process. Yoga is not really about getting your body healthy, although it does that too. Yoga is about the knowledge that will help you out of your predicament, the knowledge that can free you. Once you've made this freedom the meaning of your life, there are spiritual practices that can help you. These practices are what you do with your time in order to free yourself from yourself. You will eventually catch on that you have to distance yourself from your psyche. You will do this by setting the direction of your life when you're clear and not letting the wavering mind deter you. Your will is stronger than the habit of listening to that voice. There is nothing you can't do. Your will is supreme over all of this. If you want to free yourself, you must first become conscious enough to understand your predicament. Then you must commit yourself to the inner work of freedom. And Michael will talk about that here in just a second because that is the work of forgiveness. You do this as though your life depended on it because it does. As it is right now, your life is not your own. It belongs to your inner roommate, the psyche, and you have to take it back. Stand firm in the seat of the witness and release the hold that the habitual mind has on you. This is your life. Reclaim it. And I apologize. I am going to disconnect for a second. We're going to see if we can get dialed in. Please dial back in and join us in three minutes. I'm not sure that Blog Talks will let us get in before that, but we will check it out. Thanks. Blessings. 